Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. John 20 at 19, this is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Excuse me, my throat's dry. So back in John 20, John 20, last time we focused on Mary Magdalene and her interaction with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Such a glorious time, such a happy reunion there um, for her to see her beloved And then Mary, along with the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John, were the first persons to see Jesus risen from the dead. And I I don't think we've had joy like they felt, you know, uh, to see Jesus risen from the dead in the flesh. And before I go any further, let me state that this historical account of the resurrection is our hope, right? This is our hope as Christians. This account we take to be the truth that comes from God. What John wrote down, his eyewitness account, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was written so that we might believe. All these things were written down that we might believe. That's its purpose. Just a few verses ahead, remember, John gives, gives his purpose statement for writing the gospel. He says, Therefore, many signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's why we pay attention to this book, Right? That's why we give ourselves to reading this. That's why we come together and hear the pastor preach on this word. It's so that you might believe this thing that took place in history. And that believing that you might have life eternal. It's glorious. Life eternal. When you die and this body goes into the grave, you will continue to live. And it will be wonderful. It will be life like you've never experienced it before, free from all of the residue of the sin of Adam, right? All the pain 
and the heartache and the losses and the, you know, the, the damaged cartilage and whatever might be ailing you this morning. The heartache. Being sinned against. That will all be gone. But all of this was written, this history, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead was written down because it happened and it was the truth and by believing in it through all the ages, that's how we come to be saved. We have read the word, we have believed what was written, we have had the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and in our minds to reveal the truth of what was written down by the prophets and apostles. And it is that faith which we learn was given to us even as a gift which saves us. You have to believe that. If your parents were Christians, it doesn't get you in. It just doesn't. I wish. Or maybe some of you don't wish. Right? It's not, it's not because of your race. It's not because of your education. It's not because you're, you're able to bench 300 pounds. 350 for you. It simply is by faith. If you believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead, you will be saved. We have believed this report of the Apostle John, right? We accept it by faith. We, and, and that faith saves us. And so, um, so be happy. You believe this message. You have good reason to to have a smile on your face this morning, no matter the pain you're suffering. Now, Mary Magdalene, after speaking with Jesus and hearing him say those glorious and kind words, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God, comes back to the disciples and makes an announcement. She says, I have seen the Lord. And then she goes to give an account of, she goes on to give an account of the other things he had said to her. Now, how hard must it have been for Mary Magdalene to leave Jesus at that point, right? I mean, he says, stop clinging, and so there's a sense in which she wants to be there. She wants to stay there, but he's, he's got work for her to do. And she has to leave Jesus and do this work of announcing, but nonetheless, she takes word to the disciples and she must have been at that point thrilled to give this encouraging news, right? I've seen the Lord. Let me tell you what just happened. Can you imagine? It'd be like jumping out of your skin. Um, and, and it would be news as she said it to them. It'd be news that would be like to all of them like, oh, that's what he meant. You know, it would just be like, okay, the, the pieces are, are beginning to fall together. So on this Sunday, right, that was Sunday, Sunday evening, Mary had gotten up early, she had visited the tomb, she then was dispatched by Christ to tell the eleven, except Thomas is off eating an omelet, 
he's not there. So he, she goes back to tell the ten that Jesus had risen from the dead. And it's now later in that same day in the evening, and they know Jesus has risen from the dead, and yet they had closed themselves into this room together, doors shut. And they have done that because they're afraid that the Jews are going to do to them exactly what they just did to Christ. That they were going to come and crucify them. They were going to come and kill them. And it could be that this room that they're in is the same room in which the disciples had met with Jesus the previous Thursday, that upper room in which the Lord's Supper was um, instituted. Now, why do they fear the Jews? Well, it, it, it makes sense that they would try to wipe out the followers of Jesus after thinking they had wiped out Jesus himself. If they had crucified Christ, it was safe to assume that they would, they would try to get rid of the closest circle of his followers to snuff out this rebellion. Now, there is much speculation about how Jesus entered this room. Did you know that? Right? The sort of thing that, that I, people get hung up on, right? The sort of thing that, that people, there's certain people as I've, pastored that get hung up what I say in the creases and corners of the Bible. They like all the questions that don't have answers, right? They, they, want to, they want to figure out, and then they're just not loving their wife. And I'm like, you should probably read about loving your wife rather than trying to figure out how Jesus made it through the doors into this room. Might have more of an impact on your life. Might bring more glory to God. But did he suddenly appear? Did he cause the doors to open, then enter the room? Did he pass through the closed doors? I really don't know what to make of all of that, right? The same sort of language is used in verse 26. It mentions the doors being shut and then Jesus standing in their midst. Um, there does seem to be something miraculous about his appearance, and indeed we learn something, if it's miraculous, about the nature of the resurrected body, though Though a real body, it is fully redeemed and glorified body. Could he pass through doors? Could he appear and disappear? Could he move about in ways that are unexplainable? Um, the answer would seem to be that his glorified body was capable of these things. But lest I say too much, let's just move on. I give you a bunch of questions and no answers. Um, I want to focus on what Jesus says here. What are the first words these fearful disciples hear? I mean, you have to put yourself in the context, right? You have to put yourself in the room. These, these apostles had just abandoned Jesus. When the sheep was struck, the sheep were scattered. They had fled, save John. John didn't. But they had fled, and so when he walks into this room, they've already heard, right, from Mary Magdalene that he's, he's, he's arisen from the dead. He, he's alive. I've seen him, right? They've heard that, but they're still in this room fearful, and part of their fear would have been, yes, the fear of the Jews. Part of their fear might have been, 
where's Jesus at? And when he sees us, what's he going to say? We just left him on the cross. We just abandoned him in his pain. And so when he walks into that room, he says, Shalom Alechem. He says, peace be with you. And yeah, that is a standard greeting of the day. But given the context, that standard greeting would have been heard with new ears, right? Peace be with you. He's looking them in the eyes. And, and so, you know, they, they, had, they had scattered. They had fled. They had given in to their fears. They, they lacked the kind of loyalty and love that Jesus deserved. And to hear Jesus then say, peace be with you would have immediately told them what kind of disposition he had toward them. Ryle says, not a word of reproof or rebuke or fault-finding or blame falls from our Lord's lips. Notwithstanding all their sad, faint-heartedness and desertion on the preceding Thursday night, all is forgiven and forgotten. Just in those words, peace be with you. What joy they must have felt, not only to see the Lord in the flesh, but to learn that he was, he was not angry. He was not angry with them. Already, Christ is, you know, this is, um, if Peter gets a one-on-one restoration to the ministry because of his particular betrayal, this is the other's restoration to ministry in this room. With Jesus. Christ is at work making them fit for the gospel to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, let me stop and make an application just on that first point. How many of us would have been inclined to act like Christ in a similar circumstance? We go into a room filled with the people who have betrayed us, we go into a room of people who've sinned against us, we go into a room of people who, who uh, left us to do. Uh, the hardest thing we've ever had to do in our lives, and they just scattered away from us. How many of us would allow love to rule our heart after we had been abandoned by our friends? Would it not be more likely that you and I would have lashed out, felt justified in, in at least holding a grudge for 15 minutes? Like just the first, peace be with you may have come after 15 minutes of like, guys, what in the world? Do you, do you not know that I was bearing the sins of the world? Could you, could you at least have been in my vision praying for me when I was bearing the wrath of God? I imagine if I had walked into that room, I might have said, you know, what gives? Is this how you repay me for all the time and attention that I gave to you the last three years? Far from our minds is the fact that through love, we can cover a multitude of sins. Jesus, through his love, speaking peace be with you, is covering a multitude of sins. But we would rather add our own sin of pride the heap of pride that led to our strained relationships in the first place. We throw fuel on the fire 
We withhold forgiveness until we have made it known how displeased we are. Spouses do this to one another all the time. Parents do it toward children. Children do it toward parents. Bosses toward employees. Employees toward bosses. And Christ shows us a different way. He covers the sins of his disciples by love, by speaking peace to them. And that, that ought to teach us, right? How long are we going to bear grudges toward those who have hurt us? How long will we refuse to love others unless they love us just the way we require? But Jesus, having just suffered the wrath of God, he, having, having uh, you know, for the sins of those particular men, right? He's, he's just had their sins put on him. And then the, the Father punished those sins. And then he experienced forsakenness by his Father when he took on those sins. And then the moment he returns to those sinners that that have caused his crucifixion, he says, peace, peace be with you. Oh, peace be with you. Others really need to hear you say that. Some people in your life need to say, need to hear you say, I forgive you. And I love you. And peace be with you. Genuine peace. Be kind to one another, one another tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, says the Scripture. So that's the first thing Jesus does to build up the men who are about to take the gospel out to the world. He tells them that he is favorably disposed toward them, that he loves them, that he gives them his peace. He gives peace to cowards, right? He gives love to the disloyal. He loves them. Then what does he do? He then shows them his hand, his hands and his side. He says, look, take a look at my hands. Take a look at my side, right? That is a confirmation to the disciples that it is in fact their Jesus that stands in their midst, that he had really risen from the dead. They see the wounds that were caused by the cross and the thrust of that spear into his side. Those are wounds that Christ, it appears, may always display on his body. There's some, again, this is one of the creases and corners. There's some speculation about the fact that glorified humanity can't really have on it the marks, and so this was only temporary. But um, I like to think, that's about as deep as this gets, I like to think that those wounds that Christ has will always be displayed on his body. To those who stand in his presence one day the wounds will remind them of his sacrificial death. The eternal words of the scripture will redound in our minds when we gaze upon his wounds. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. 
And we'll just like write songs on that verse for 28,000 years. In Luke's account of this meeting, we learn that Jesus invited the men even to touch him, to touch those wounds. Why are you troubled and why do your doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's like, Put, touch me, touch those wounds. So again, Jesus is building up these men. They didn't go on frightened and despairing. Jesus is back. Jesus is there. Jesus is alive. Jesus was really in their midst, and it is from them seeing those wounds that they immediately, it says in the text, rejoice. Now they're like, it is Jesus, yes, you know? Second part of verse 20 says, the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They now believe that he was risen from the dead, and their lives would now be dedicated to taking that message out to the world. The apostles would teach the world that this man, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead and that they were witnesses to these things and that believing this as they had believed would lead to their salvation. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the message that went out and is still going out even from this pulpit this morning. Now, the disciples in that room are rejoicing. They are, they are feeling a flood of relief, a flood of love, a flood of joy, astonishment, really. And Jesus says again the words that he initially spoke in their gloomy hearts. He says, peace be with you. He says it again, peace. And then he says this, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So what we are witnessing here is the commissioning service of the apostles. That's what this is. They're being commissioned. The Father sent the Son. Now the Son is sending the apostles out. They are to go out and carry this on. And what's the reason? Well, Jesus is not going to be there. His ministry is coming to an end. Somebody's got to carry on. Guess who it is? It's the apostles. They're given power. They're given power to do this work. And, you know, at this point, as the Father has sent the Son, I also send you all the words that Jesus had spoken to them in the upper room four days before are now being, you know, initiated. And they're thinking back on all those things Jesus said they would do. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Remember, and that's all about the, the effectiveness of the preaching of the Word of God. Jesus preached and people rejected Him. The apostles preached and 3,000 in one time came to faith, right? Those were the greater things that those apostles did. And they were about to go out and do those things. John 14, 25, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So one of the things about what they're going to do is they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Not that they haven't already received the Holy Spirit, but they're going to receive the ordination of the Holy Spirit, the special outpouring, the special gift that is on top of their regeneration. 
John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. They're going to go out and they're going to pray and crazy things are going to happen because the Father's going to answer their prayers, right? And on and on, we could go back through those chapters of John and all the things that Jesus laid out for them there. That's like their book of church order, right? And now we're at the the ordination service. And then in that room with the disciples, you know, you think of all the, the information about all the teaching about the Holy Spirit in those chapters 14, 15, 16 of John that were said to the disciples in that upper room. Now, think of what happens here. In that room with the disciples, Jesus then breathes on the apostles. He breathes on them. So strange, isn't it? He breathes on them and says, as he breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that He had days ago promised them, they are now physically receiving in the sense of their their commissioning, their, their ordination. Now think of Genesis 2. God breathed on a man there too, didn't He? God breathed into that dust and Adam became a living being, Right? God breathed into dust and it came alive. It became man. And now these men have Jesus breathe on them and they become become deserters and cowards into those who go and, and preach the gospel everywhere and die faithful deaths just as their Jesus died. Right? They've they're they're coming alive. Adam received the power to live from the breath of God. In a similar sense, the apostles received the power of the Spirit to accomplish the task given them by Jesus. They would take the word of life to the nations, and those appointed to life would hear and believe. The bestowal of the Spirit is, in a sense, an ordination to work. It is not that they did not believe and like this is their regeneration. I don't believe that that's the case at this point. But they're receiving special commissioning as sent ones. They're being ordained for the work. This is the special gift being given them. And Calvin says, to govern the church of God, to carry the embassy of eternal salvation, to erect the kingdom of God on earth, and to raise men to heaven is a task far beyond human capacity. We need not be astonished, therefore, that no man is found qualified unless he be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Remember the ordination of Timothy. The Apostle Paul in the Presbytery ordains Timothy with the laying on of hands. And what does he receive? It says he receives a spiritual gift, right? That made him able to do the work. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the Presbytery. And then what about the um, Acts 2, the outpouring of the Spirit at Acts 2? Well, that's the public proclamation of the power of the apostles, whereas this is the private ordination and commissioning. 
in this upper room, right? A private ceremony and then the public, Acts 2, outpouring publicly upon many that spirit. So then, what is the work they were given to do? And this is where it gets really tricky. It is this, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Would somebody like to come up here and take my spot? We're immediately faced with a question. On its face, the statement seems to indicate that the apostles had the power to forgive sins, that the apostles in themselves had the power to absolve particular people of their sins. But we know that it is God alone who absolves sins. God alone absolves sins. No man, no matter how many times he got breathed on during his Roman Catholic ordination, has the power to forgive sins. Okay? God alone forgives sins. His forgiveness is all that really matters because our, sin, our sins are offenses against Him, right? So there's no priestly mediator outside of Christ that can absolve sins. How then do we make sense of this statement? Were the apostles and then those who have followed the apostles by extension, we would say pastors, given the power to absolve sins and whatever they determined God was, you know, whatever they determined, God was only able to then give the second to the motion, right? Some priest says, you know, I absolve your sins, and all God can do is say, I second that motion. No. No, that's so offensive. That's so, that so turns the order of things on its head. We do not tie the hands of God by, um, by the determination of, of a man. Um, and this is not what Jesus is doing. He's not conferring on them some magical ability to absolve men's sins. What did he do? He gave them, again, you're going to get, you're going to think I'm, I'm dumb, and I am, but he gave them the word to preach. And what does the word say? The word declares to the whole world Here's how your sins are forgiven. Here's how your sins are retained. They go and declare this everywhere. We declare this is how you are saved. You're saved by faith in Christ. And wherever the gospel is preached, that is declaring that your your sins may be forgiven in Jesus Christ. That is declaring the way. And so just like those greater works was the preaching of the word and its power, these apostles would preach the word and the content of that preached word would divide all men. Calvin says, while Christ enjoins the apostles to forgive sins, he does not convey to them what is peculiar to himself. It belongs to God to forgive sins. This honor, so far as it belongs to himself, he does not surrender to the apostles, 
but enjoins them in his name to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, that through their agency, through the agency of those who are being ordained to this office, he may reconcile men to God. In short, properly speaking, it is he alone who forgives sins through his apostles and ministers. God does the forgiving of sins, right? And I get up in the pulpit and I declare, okay, do you want to know how to be saved? Here's the way to be saved. If you reject it, you've, you, you have, your sins are retained. If you reject the message of the gospel that is preached from this pulpit, your sins are retained. I guarantee it. If you accept it, your sins are forgiven. I guarantee it. That's what we do. We declare this. We declare the means of salvation. We declare, we preach. We preach the gospel. We preach and preach and preach. And I don't even... The elders and pastors of the church exercise authority by declaring the free grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. They declare that if you go down this path, if you embrace sodomy, you will go to hell. Right? They, de they declare the law and they say, if you are a lawbreaker who never repents, I can guarantee you, I tell you now that your sins will be retained. But it's God ultimately who does that retaining. We just declare what he said in his word. He, we, 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 we preach the, 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 uh, we preach the rule book. And we preach the gospel. Now, there are other, there are other like Roman Catholic priests actually, when you go into confession, actually believe that because of the manner of their ordination and because of apostolic succession, which I think is bunk, right? They believe that this power of absolving sins personally resides in the priest and that priest can personally absolve your sins. And we say, blasphemy, blasphemy. Only God has the power to forgive sins. Only God. That is so blasphemously wrong. It's terrible. And think about the wreckage that comes when you confer that kind of power on a man. Do you think you'd be able to control your, your absolutions and retentions for people? If you're annoyed with somebody, wouldn't you just burden them with 10 million Hail Marys? And then we'd be like, ah, maybe you're forgiven. I mean, come on. That's exactly, sinners would batter other people with their ch chance at forgiveness. Whereas God says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? True forgiveness. But, the, the, but why is it so tempting we want somebody before us to, to like pronounce an absolution. You are forgiven. Because we just like to touch and see and taste and hear and, 
and handle, right? We, we want things tangibly before us. And God's forgiveness, though he shouts it in the word, seems so far off and so distant that we can't ever like come to terms with it. Even though he's shouting it in this, constantly telling you that if you believe in Christ, you're forgiven. No, no exceptions. <laughs> and yet we'd rather have some, some dude in a dress tell us that we're forgiven. Seriously. Some dude blaspheming before us and somehow that's helping our conscience? No, 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 no. You need God's forgiveness. You need God's forgiveness. And you need your pastor, yes, and elders to say, here's the path that leads to life. Here's the path that leads to death. It looks like you're getting off the path. Come back on the path because God's word says that what you're doing is sin. So get back on the path. But in the end, it's God's determination about whether or not your sins are forgiven or retained. We just declare the way. Does that make sense? It's so important. I mean, I want to read you six pages of Ryle on this. Got it right here, but my dad will be angry at me if I read from a book. Love you, Dad. So I can't. I'm not going to. It is helpful to us when our pastors declare to us when we come to the Lord's table that there is genuine forgiveness in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Right? It helps us when our pastors declare to us that we are living like pagans and we have no right to come to the table. Right? Declaring that you seem to be off the path, that you shouldn't come to the table. Exercising that discipline that we're tasked with. We are tasked with making judgments on that front, judgments that can err, judgments that can be wrong, but can also correspond to the very judgment of God concerning specific individuals. And so your pastors and elders are God's merciful means of speaking to you and declaring to you what is good and what is right. And so you ought to hear God speaking through them. When the session warns you to resist your sin before you make shipwreck of your faith, you ought to hear God speaking through them. They cannot ultimately determine whether your sins are forgiven or retained, but they can make judgments about your fruit and your fruit bearing and what it seems to indicate, okay? And that discipline is good. It's meant to, to come to you through the gentle agency of man rather than from God directly. What a mercy. What a mercy that God would discipline us through, through sinners like ourselves. You know, would you rather have God deal with you directly? You think maybe that might be better so that you wouldn't have to listen to Chuck Fultz. You know, make judgments. But, but trust me, Chuck Fultz is merciful, right? 
and patience. And God has called him to those things. So I guess in the end, what I want to say is don't despise ordination. These apostles are being ordained for this task. They're taking the words of life. They're going to declare who's in and who's out and how how you find yourself in either category. And then all of and then God determines everything. It's his determination at the end of all days. But don't despise ordination. Do not despise the authority of the church. Don't blow off their declarations of forgiveness. Some of you have a hard time believing you're forgiving. You need to hear me say, if you believe in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven you. Believe it. Right? And then others of you need to hear that you're headed off course. Come back. Don't live like a pagan. That is the way of destruction. Come back. And so you need their reminder of God's kindness to you and their reminder of God's displeasure with you running off on your, to your, your own pleasures So you ought to hear God working through these means, right? But we live in a who-do-you-think-you-are age, right? Who do you think you are? I will deal with God directly myself. We say, I will find encouragement my my own way. I will read the Word and interpret it my own way. I will not attend church. I will go off and do it my own way. I will find correctness my own way. I'll just do it my way. That's what we do. I mean, I've seen it countless times. And so that this, what a gift that God gives us, gives us warnings. And this work continues on until the end of the age through the ordained ministry of the church. We, we proclaim Christ and open the door. We warn sinners that going after their sin, they will be condemned. And at times we close the door, hoping that God will grant to them repentance. And ultimately, those declarations of ministers will cease and the final judgment will come. And then there will be no time left to heed any of the declarations and warnings God sent to you through other men. Then it will be done. Then it will be done. It's no more, this is the way that leads to life and this is the way that leads to death. It's just, you're alive, you're dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. We thank you that your words of life declared out into your creation are powerful. Lord, I pray that we as ministers and elders would be faithful, that we would point people to Christ whether they embrace Christ or stumble over him as an offense. But Father, all judgment belongs to you. You are the almighty God. And we worship you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work on our behalf. Thank you for saving our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.